Part two of Futility, a novel on Russian themes by William Gerhardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Part two, The Revolution. Chapter one. Then I went to Oxford, and when the war broke out I joined the Navy. But just before the revolution, Admiral Butt, who had gone on a special mission to Russia, applied for my Anglo-Russian services. I still remember very vividly the morning following on my arrival in Petrograd, when I had to meet the Admiral for the first time at the British Embassy. I ascended the broad staircase with its worn red carpet to the chancery. Very perfect young men, very perfectly dressed, were conversing in very perfect intonations about love among monkeys. It struck me as delightfully human for diplomats. When I descended, the Admiral had not yet arrived. I talked to Yuri, the hall-porter, a clean-shaven individual of uncertain nationality, violently pro-British, and speaking several languages all very badly. Every now and then the great heavy door would open, it was snowing heavily outside, and some man or woman would come in and inquire if this was the military district staff. "'It is the British Embassy,' replied Yuri proudly, and he explained the error. The military district staff was Four Palace Square, the Embassy Four Palace Key. In peacetime people did come in occasionally and inquire if this was the military district staff, but since war had been declared they seemed to be doing little else. I pondered over the possibility of Yuri, unable one day to withstand the increasing pressure of inquiries, going mad and holding forth on this subject to his brother inmates, henceforth indefinitely in a lunatic asylum. Helping me on with my coat, Yuri was suddenly seized by a strange panic. He dropped the coat on the floor and dashed to the door. I followed him, thinking it was the revolution. I was rewarded for my exertion. The ambassador's car drove up, and sitting in it were Sir George Buchanan and the French ambassador. Yuri sprang up, and pulling off his cap, opened the door of the vehicle, and stood still in a paroxysm of reverence and awe. But the two great men within continued talking, the Frenchman in that agitated, agile manner that Frenchmen have, the Englishman with a fine superiority of distinction. The ambassadors of the two friendly powers sat talking, evidently unaware that they had arrived. Yuri held the door open, still bareheaded, the incarnation of servility and devotion. Then they entered. Yuri made a dash for Sir George's feet, and began hastily to unbuckle his felt galoshes, while the great diplomat, with his fur collar still up to his temples, and his round fur cap cocked over on one ear, stood panting in his great fur coat. I had an absurd idea that something great must be happening on the political horizon. Finally the admiral arrived. He was a tall, imperious figure. His movements were powerful and sweeping. He had an air of a man engaged in winning the war, while everybody else about him was obstructing him in his patriotic task. His voice was the voice of such a man. His look seemed specially selected to match his voice. That war-winning quality was clearly manifest in his personality, 
but his actual work towards that end was all very obscure. Then one morning, as I was about to cross the Troitsky Bridge to meet the Admiral, I was stopped by the police and was compelled to go home and change into uniform. When I returned, the revolution had already broken out. The Admiral had just witnessed the sacking of the arsenal by a disorderly crowd. Regiment after regiment was going over to the revolution. Solitary shots, and now and then machine-gun fire, were heard from various quarters of the city. The Admiral and I stood at the window and watched. Lorry after lorry packed with armed soldiery and workmen, some lying in a ready attitude along the mud-guards, went past us in a kind of wild and dazzling joy-ride, waving red flags and revolutionary banners to shouts of hurrah from the crowds in the street. The Admiral stood with his hands folded on the window-sill, unable to withhold his enthusiasm. It was a clear, bright day, I think, and very cold. That evening, following the outbreak of the revolution, was vividly impressed upon my memory. During the day I had listened to innumerable speeches, some of a liberal loftiness, others of a menacingly proletarian character, threatening death to capital and revolution to the world at large. There was a tendency to flamboyant extravagance and exaggeration. "'Down with armies and navies!' shouted one speaker hysterically. "'Down with militarism! Through red terror to peace, freedom, and brotherhood!' There were placards and banners and processions. "'Land and liberty!' was a popular watchword. Red was the dominant color, and the opening bars of the Marseillaise were a kind of recurring leitmotif in the tumult. Crossing a bridge, I passed a company of soldiers newly revolted, they marched alert and joyous to the sound of some old familiar marching song till they came to the words for the Tsar. Having sung these words, they stopped somewhat abruptly and perplexed. "'How for the Tsar?' one of them asked. "'How for the Tsar?' they repeated, looking at each other sheepishly. Then they marched on without singing. There were peasants who did not know the word revolution, and thought it was a woman who would supersede the Tsar. Others wanted a republic with the Tsar, and there were others still who interpreted the word republic as resh publicu, thinking that it meant cut up the public. In the Troitsky Square I was stopped by a young, enthusiastic Russian officer who, attracted by my British uniform, spoke to me in English, his eyes glittering with excitement. "'Sir,' he said, "'you now will have more vigorous allies.' and then in the Nevsky I passed a procession of anarchists who are regarded by the Bolsheviks with about the same degree of unmitigated horror as the Bolsheviks are regarded by the Morning Post. They marched with a gruesome look about their faces, bearing their horrible colors of black, crested with a human skull and crossbones. And somewhat later in the day I sat at dinner with Zina's people on the Petrograd side, and in the presence of a score of students, male and female, an engineer, a lawyer, and a journalist or two, all of that revolutionary intelligentsia, probably accounted for the liberal atmosphere that prevailed. Yesterday they had been revolutionaries. Today they were contented liberals, hailing Lvov and Milyukov 
as the heroes of the day. The engineer drank to the future. The old world is dead. Long live the new world. The two ancient grandfathers were much too old and feeble to intervene on behalf of the old order of things. They had exhausted their liberal aspirations with the liberation of the serfs in 1861, and could not see what in the world more anybody wanted. Zina's father, underpaid and ill as he was, had lost forever the hope of seeing better days, and failed to see how the revolution could affect his own position. Nikolai Vasilievich was still keeping him so far. These liberals interpreted the revolution as a protest against the pro-German tendency at court, and as an attempt to get into line with the Western democracies in this hitherto unconvincing struggle against militarism and autocracy. The news was rumored that the Tsar had abdicated. Again it was said that a section of the court had been planning a revolution to depose the emperor, and substitute his brother Michael in order to carry on the war more vigorously, and that the people's revolution had preceded it by two days. Some monarchists now wanted to put down the revolution in order to carry on the war. Other monarchists wanted to put down the war in order to put down the revolution, and still other monarchists wanted to put down the revolution and did not care a hang about the war. The liberals wanted the revolution to carry on the war, the Tsar wanted to put down the revolution, the socialists and workmen wanted to put down the war and to put down the Tsar, and the soldiers and sailors wanted to put down their officers. The liberal gathering drank to Russia's allies, and then Uncle Kostya, obviously moved by the great event, rose and said in a slow melodious voice, we will not talk about or criticize the past. We will carry it gently into the depths of the garden and bury it there among the flowers. And then, carefully, we will look into the cradle and nurse very tenderly the slumbering future. This attitude, we all felt, was befitting to the great bloodless revolution. Chapter 2 I remember the excitement of it all. Uncle Kostya, it appeared, had risen earlier that day on account of the revolution, and after dinner, still in his dressing-gown and slippers, he paced the floor quicker than was his custom, and, contrary to his practice, discoursed at great length. He held that history was moving at an unheard-of pace, and he complained that it was indeed difficult for him, a historian, to keep pace with it. The revolution had overtaken Uncle Kostya, as he was still tackling the age of Anne. From Zina's house I remember walking to the Bursanovs in the Mohovaya. I passed the somber silhouettes of the snow-covered barges frozen on the Neva. It was dark now, and the crowds in the streets were more tumultuous. Soldiers and civilians alike walked aimlessly, rifle slung over the shoulder. Several wine-cellars had been broken into, there were drunkards in the streets, but anyhow all seemed drunk with the revolution. Shots were heard every now and then, mostly fired in the air, while the law courts had gone up in flames. The revolution, it was felt, had been established. Curiously enough, I had not seen the Bursanovs on my return to Petrograd until that night. They were just the same. 
Kniatz sat in the corner of the little drawing-room in his usual chair, and it seemed that the revolution had impressed him. But how it had impressed him, no one could have divined. Need I say that the three sisters sat in much the same positions, waiting, waiting for developments? Nikolai Vasilievich was very bitter. He had regarded the war almost as a deliberate attempt of providence to complicate his already very complicated domestic situation, and considering that providence had had the satisfaction of achieving its pernicious end, it seemed he could not understand the necessity of a revolution. Malignity, malignity, he muttered, lowering the blinds, as if to show that he, at any rate, would have nothing to do with it. "'Nothing noble about it at all,' he answered me. And Fanny Ivanovna, who had been sitting silently for some time, looked as if she were entirely of his opinion on that point. And then a horrible groan was heard from the adjoining room. I cast a swift interrogative glance at Nikolai Vasilievich. I had an idea that they had hidden some wretched, half-mutilated policeman, the victim of a revolutionary mob. But Nikolai Vasilievich and Fanny Ivanovna looked awkward and ashamed. There was, I noticed, a kind of appeal for sympathy in their eyes. "'That is Fanny Ivanovna's husband,' said Nikolai Vasilievich apologetically. I looked incredulous, and he explained. As Fanny Ivanovna was not married to him, she was a German subject, and when war broke out she was to go back to Germany or be interned in Vologda. She refused to go to Germany till Nikolai Vasilievich had provided for her for life, but as far as the war had further crippled his finances, he was not in a position to give her the money. So they married her to Eberheim, an elderly gentleman of German extraction, but a Russian subject. As his nominal wife, Fanny Ivanovna was a Russian subject and could live in Russia until such time as the improvement in the working of the gold mines made it possible for Nikolai Vasilievich to provide for her for life. Then, if he could get a divorce from his wife, he would marry Zina. "'Is he wounded?' I asked scenting revolutionary blood in the air. No, cancer, said Nikolai Vasilievich, and contrasted with this word painted red, the revolution out of doors seemed pale and trifling. He's going to have an operation in a day or so. Has he suffered long? I inquired. Oh, we took him out of hospital, explained Fanny Ivanovna. You may think it odd, but he consented to the marriage on condition that we took him home and looked after him. He said that he would not live long in any case, and that money was no earthly use to him in his condition. What he wanted was care and comfort. And now the doctors and operations are costing Nikolai Vasilievich a good bit of money, I can tell you. Really, we are most unfortunate people. And Sonia, too, marrying Baron Wunderhausen, who, as I suspected, is a drag on Nikolai Vasilievich's resources. Really, he cannot afford it, Andrei Andreitch. The mines... She waved her hand. Nikolai Vasilievich, with his hands deep in his trouser pockets, stood looking at the window, though the blinds were lowered and there was nothing he could see. The wedding ceremony, she went on, was painful. 
I barely stood it myself. The priest at first refused to marry us. Nikolai Vasilievich had to lead him aside and bribe him. Eberheim's condition was so bad, critical. It was wicked. Yet he has a way of lasting. He has lasted now for over two years. One wants to be human to him, but really, Andrei Andreitch, look at us, look at us, us. And now the revolution. Who wants the revolution? She put her chin on her hand and turned her face away. There was silence. Then, suddenly, without reason or provocation, she turned on the old Knyats, sitting neatly in his usual armchair, imperturbable like a butler. Knyats! Don't sit there like that, like... Oh, God, you've been sitting like that in that chair for thirteen years. Say something! Say something! What can I say? He smiled faintly. What can you say? She echoed. And again there was silence. Hasn't he got any relations? She shook her head. No money? Penniless. Is he good? Yes, but exacting. Oh, poor fellow, he can't help it, said Nikolai Vasilievich. Poor fellow, said Fanny Ivanovna. Poor fellow, I echoed. For a moment we sat in silence. We waited for Eberheim to groan again, but he too was silent, and we could just hear the measured ticking of the great oak-panelled clock in the corner, and the subdued tumult of the streets below. And where is Magda Nikolaevna? I asked. She is with Chichedik. One burden less, what, Nikolai Vasilievich? Nikolai Vasilievich sighed. You would hardly say so, said Fanny Ivanovna, for Nikolai Vasilievich still has to keep his wife. But what of Chichedik? I am very sorry for him, said Fanny Ivanovna. And I learnt that at the outbreak of hostilities, the Russian authorities had found it necessary to confiscate the whole of Chichedik's property. They were then going to intern him, but he succeeded in proving to them that he was now a Czech, and so they set him free but the property which they had taken from him as an Austrian, they did not return to him as a Czech. He had been in correspondence with the authorities on this subject ever since July 1914, and on his ultimate success in getting some of it refunded, his marriage with Magda Nikolaevna must henceforth depend. Whether the revolution would assist him in his ambitious expectations, or would delay them further, it was hard to prophesy. Nikolai Vasilievich helped him as much as he was able in his present circumstances. In the meantime, Magda Nikolaevna had suspended her application for a divorce and was still on Nikolai Vasilievich's books for payment. But Chichedik's attitude had not changed. He now rather liked to emphasize the Slavic side to their union and had in the last three years developed a Czech intonation in his Russian speech professed an undue regard for his brother Slavs, pronounced his own name Chichedik, and in signing put those funny little accents on the seas. I left them very early next morning. In the excitement of the day there had been much work left overnight unaccomplished. It was about six o'clock when I crossed the field of Mars. Soldiers in odd groups strolled along in the snow, now and then firing off a rifle in the air just for the fun of the thing. 
and the capital wore that appearance of a banqueting-hall in the shrewd light of the morning, after a particularly heavy feast. Fretful clouds moved swiftly across the winter sky. The morning promised a fine day. CHAPTER Three. The revolution dragged on through the winter and deepened as the months advanced. The forerunners of confusion became visible. Food and commodities were being procured in an irregular manner. All were waiting. Pictures of them recur continually to my mind as I write. I can see Fanny Ivanovna, and particularly I can see the three sisters, always sitting in the same positions, perched on sundry chairs and sofas, Fanny Ivanovna engaged in silent contemplation over needlework, and Knyats sitting in his usual chair, reading, or more often sitting idly, thinking into space. The seasons would be changing rapidly, from one to the other, but their position never. Rain would drum against the window-pane, snow would be falling on the street below, then the ice on the neva would begin to break and slowly move toward the bay, and again one would feel the onset of spring, the unfolding of white nights. How tiring this is, Andrei Andreitch, Fanny Ivanovna complained, to be always waiting to begin to live. When is that upward movement in happiness, that splendid life that we are always waiting for, to begin at last? Somehow you wait for the spring, but spring has come, alone, and only emphasizes our misery by the contrast. Spring makes me mad. I begin to want impossible things. You are an active woman, Fanny Ivanovna, said I. You ought not to sit still. It's bad for you. You ought to run about. But I've got to wait. I suppose waiting is sitting still. It is, in a sense. It isn't that. But what am I going to run about for? I go out shopping. But that doesn't advance things, you know. Besides, I simply dread asking Nikolai Vasilievich for money. He hasn't got any? He has. He's always borrowing. Crescendo forte fortissimo. But where will it all end? When? Borrowing money is all right if you can do it. But it's not as it were, an income. It's not, how shall I put it, an end in itself, is it? There's got to be something, somewhere, sometime. Those gold mines have got to justify themselves. Our plans, our movements, everything depends on them. That's why it's so annoying. They've got to pay, and I am confident that they will pay. But when? She rose abruptly, as was her wont, her black silk skirt rustling as she swept out. It was papa this and mamma that, and Fanny Ivanovna the other thing. Won't you stop sighing? I suggested. It's all very well for you, protested the three sisters simultaneously. But do you think it's very nice for us? What do you want, anyhow? They did not answer. They looked at the window, brooding. I said in a jovial tone of voice, well, I tried to help you, but you won't be helped. Helped us indeed, they cried out simultaneously. The three sisters had a way of speaking simultaneously and almost word for word in matters of domestic politics. They were a party in themselves, 
stubbornly opposed to all the other camps of Nikolai Vasilievich's family. The night before I had taken them to Kusovitsky's concert. People had been staring enviously at me, as if to ask, Who are those three pretty kittens? I felt absurdly like a proud papa. The music was excruciating. During the piano solo I clung to my chair, I could scarcely sit still. Scriabin, I burst out as the music stopped, is a persistent knocking at the door, but the door doesn't open. Still, as we might know in any case that there is nothing behind the door, that doesn't greatly matter, does it? It's the knocking that is a human necessity, and what a desperate knocking it is. Nina looked at me with that trick she had of assuming innocence, and said, Which door? And it flashed across my mind that, Whereas Sonia played the piano with an agreeable touch of feeling, Nina's hammering was shrill and disagreeable, while musically Vera was still an unknown quantity. But the pianist had resumed. "'What is this?' Nina asked. "'A foxtrot,' I replied, very superior. I sat on the small seat facing the three sisters, as Professor Metchnikoff trotted homeward through the somber streets. The night was warm and humid, by the street-lamps I could see their faces. When she was silent, Nina looked so wise. Perhaps she seemed wiser than she actually was. All this, the war, the revolution, she had overlooked, and it did not exist. Scriabin, she had overlooked him, and he did not exist. But she was there, watchful. The day after was like the day before. They sat there listless, Fanny Ivanovna, Knyats, and the three sisters. The three sisters always sat in some extraordinary positions, on the backs of sofas and easy chairs, and Fanny Ivanovna and Knyats sat in very ordinary positions. Nikolai Vasilievich alone was always absent, and I think there was a sort of feeling running through us all that he at least was busy doing something. But in more skeptical moods, I know I was getting inclined to question dubiously whether he too was getting anywhere for all the semblance of activity that his mysterious absence involved. I remember the silhouette of Nina's profile at the window. I can feel the tension of the silence that hung over the room, the suspense of waiting, of indefinite waiting for indefinite things. In the hush that had crept upon us, I could fancy I could sense acutely the disturbing presence of the things my eye could not behold, the gilded domes radiant in the fading sunlight, the many bridges thrown across the widespread stream, and in the stillness I was made to feel as if by instinct the throbbing pulse of Petrograd. The leaden waves splashed gently against the granite banks, and the air was full of that yearning melancholy call of life that yet reminds one, God knows why, of the imminence of death, and in the sky there was the promise of a white night. Chapter 4 Petrograd looked thoroughly nasty on that cold November morning. There was the drizzling snow, and it was still dark as I walked home with Uncle Kostya. We had been at the Finland station to see off two of Uncle Kostya's nieces who were going abroad. It was the morning of the Bolshevik Revolution, and Uncle Kostya looked pessimistic. Do you remember all those student revolutionaries, 
the heroes of our young intelligentsia who had been persecuted by the old regime well he pointed from the bridge that we were traversing to the bolshevik craft that had arrived from kronstadt overnight this is more than they bargained for more than they bargained for we walked on they are malcontents again but on the other side truth is fond of playing practical jokes of this sort my god how elusive it is it is wonderful how beneath our hastily made-up truths the truths of usage and convenience there runs independently often contrarywise a wider bigger truth can't you feel it the pseudo-reason of unreason the lack of reasonable evidence in reason issues motives being muddled up this ethical confusion and the blind habitual resort to bloodshed as a means of straightening it out more confusion honor is involved bloodshed as a solution more honor involved in the solution more bloodshed that idiotic plea that each generation should sacrifice itself for the so-called benefit of the next it never seems to end oh how the pendulum swings wider and wider and we are shedding blood generation after generation for what for whom for future generations my god what fools we are fools shedding blood for the sake of future fools who will do as much but what are you to do what i persisted uncle kostya was evasive you see he said at last subtleties of the mind if pursued to their logical conclusions become crudities let us cease our conversation at this point barricades appeared in the streets bridges were being suspended lorries of joy-riding proletarians became familiarly conspicuous as i walked on towards the bursanovs i found the household in a state of wild excitement however the event had no connection with the revolution in fact with continual domestic revolutions in their own home the much ado about the political revolution appeared particularly to the three sisters a foolish affectation i learned that nikolai vasilievich had just discovered that his bookkeeper stanitsky at the instigation of his house agent had these last five years been falsifying the books and robbing him wholesale when the discovery was made the house agent had vanished into the darkness whence he had emerged but as i entered i was very nearly knocked down by nikolai vasilievich dashing after stanitsky the bookkeeper as he was flying down the stairs he caught him by the tail of his overcoat and dragged him back into his study he had him standing stiff and awkward and ashamed before his desk while he himself reclined in his armchair nikolai vasilievich did not shout as stanitsky who knew his master intimately had no doubt expected him to do he spoke quietly and even sadly and it was the sadness of his speech that penetrated stanitsky's slavic nature to the heart how could you have cheated me like that ivan sergeitch me who have trusted you and stanitsky became emotional 
Nikolai Vasilievich, he exclaimed with his hands joined together and the whites of his eyes turned heavenward. Nikolai Vasilievich, God in heaven knows I have not been helping myself to your money as you seem to think, recklessly. But since I took a little, and I have a wife, children, dependents, I had to do what the house agent told me. I was in his hands, at the mercy of a blackguard and a robber. Nikolai Vasilievich, I often felt I wanted to warn you of this rascal, but I was in his hands, since I took myself. But I took in measure, Nikolai Vasilievich, conscientiously, with my eyes on God. The old man sobbed bitter tears. He felt that fate had dealt him a cruel blow, unjustifiably cruel, in return for his moderation. What could be done to him? Baron Wunderhausen, who now, as Sonya's husband, lived with the family, suggested handing the man over to the Bolshevik militia. But Nikolai Vasilievich only waved his hand. I think it was the family aspect of the old man's position that penetrated Nikolai Vasilievich to the heart. He sat there at his desk, brooding darkly, while Stanitsky, gently, like a cat, felt his way out of the flat. Fanny Ivanovna sighed conspicuously. "'An optimistic gentleman, Stanitsky,' I remarked. "'What a belief in the kindliness of things! What a claim on the favor of Providence!' "'And as it happens, he is not far wrong in his calculations,' said the baron, with a bitterness which showed that he, as son-in-law, was dissatisfied with the management of the family's finances. "'I call this state of things disgraceful.' "'God have mercy upon us,' whispered Fanny Ivanovna, almost ironically. "'An optimist,' I digressed aloud, "'is a fool, since he can't see what awaits him, disillusionment.' but he is wise without knowing it, since, however bad the present, he remains an optimist as to the future, and so his present seems never quite so bad to him as it really is. "'Say it again,' breathed Nina. "'A fool,' said Nikolai Vasilievich, "'is an optimist. He is optimistic about himself, optimistic about his folly. I'm an optimist.' He stood up, his hands in his trouser-pockets, and gazed at the window. Twilight was falling swiftly. Nina, perched up on the sofa, sat silent, her head bent. "'What's the good of being miserable?' I said to her. "'As though I deliberately chose to be miserable.' To console herself, she took an apple. "'Optimists that we are,' sighed Fanny Ivanovna. "'Warranting considerable pessimism,' supplied the baron. It is easier to hope, said Nikolai Vasilievich, and be disappointed. It is easier to hope, knowing that one will be disappointed, than not hope at all. Why don't the writers, the novelists, why don't they write about this, this real life, said Fanny Ivanovna, this real drama of life, rather than their neat, reasoned, reasonable, and, oh, so unconvincing novels, this philosophizing won't help us, jeered Nikolai Vasilievich mildly. We ought to do things. I want to do things. This moment I am teeming over with energy. I could do and settle things today, square up our affairs and start life afresh. But... The baron looked at him. Well? But... A gesture at the window indicated the obstacle. 
What can I do with this? What can anybody do? All is tumbling, going to ruin. In a month or so all business will stop, works will close down, the rouble will be valueless. There will be nothing. Now don't lose courage, Nikolai, said Fanny Ivanovna hopefully. We shall pull through. Somehow we shall. And then, on the other side of the grave, we shall be safe. Her most optimistic moment in life, jeered Nikolai Vasilievich. It's a surprising thing what the human soul will stand, Andrei Andreitch, she said. I can venture only this explanation. It is habit. You see, the cup is ever filled to the brim. But, lo, the miracle. The cup expands. No trouble, none. And here we are. Life gets you, came from the window. Sooner or later it gets you all the same. I don't know what it's for, why, or who wants it. It seems so unnecessary, useless, even silly. And yet I cannot think that it's all in vain. There must be, perhaps, a larger pattern somewhere in which all these futilities, these shifting incongruities, are somehow reconciled. But shall we know? Shall we ever know the reason? Philosophy, cheered Nikolai Vasilievich mildly. Perhaps, I said, when we awaken on the other side of death and ask to be told the reason, they will shrug their shoulders and will say, We don't know. It's beyond us. Do you not know? And we shall never know. Never. How awfully funnily your mouth moves when you speak, said Nina, who had been listening to me attentively frightfully there is no proof said baron wunderhausen that death is the end but there is no proof as yet that death is not the end so there's no proof of anything asked nikolai vasilievich no thank you said fanny ivanovna the baron bowed then nikolai vasilievich passed into the hall and put his coat on as it was time for me to go we went out together I remember there was something hopeless about that night, a sense of dread about the political and economic chaos that seemed to harmonize with Nikolai Vasilievich's state of mind. I think it may be that he found a kind of ghastly pleasure in the thought that if he was miserable, if destitution stared him in the face, the whole world also seemed to be tumbling about him into decay and ruin. As we crossed the palace square, we were challenged by a soldier who had emerged from behind a pile of firewood dumped before the winter palace. He stepped forward with fixed bayonet and demanded money, while pointing his bayonet at my breast. He held his finger on the trigger. He was considerably drunk. Neither of us happened to have any money. "'Got any cigarettes, comrades?' he asked. Neither of us had cigarettes. "'And I,' explained the drunken soldier, Go about, you know, letting the guts out of the bourgeois. That's right, comrade, ventured Nikolai Vasilievich. Kill them all, the dirty dogs. I will, said the soldier cheerily, and stalked off into the night while we went our way. Nikolai Vasilievich only shook his head and sighed, and shook his head and sighed. He muttered something, but the wind that overtook us carried off his words. I could just catch my house, the mines. End of section four.